0: Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation Podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queens and Eastern Ontario. Welcome everybody to this episode. We're, we're happy we have Peter Vandervelden joining us for this week's or this episode's interview. Peter is managing general partner at a place called Lumera Ventures. Lumera is Canada's leading healthcare and life science venture capital firm with a 30-plus year reputation for building companies across North America. Peter has 32 years of investment and operating experience and has participated in building companies from startup through expansion and has been involved not only with companies in the life science sector, but also with the information technology and consumer sectors. Prior to LaMira, Peter's experience includes being a partner in a bio partnerships targeting retail and consumer-centric businesses, a vice president business development in a VC-backed drug delivery company an associate role at one of the largest Canadian VC firms and started his career at Connaught Biosciences. He holds an MBA from Schulich School of Business and uh, pleased to say is a Queen's twice grad, master's in pathology, preceded by uh, an honours bachelor degree in the life sciences. Peter, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. So why don't we we kick off and, and just tell us a little bit about your career path and how in 2005, you joined Lumera Ventures, and uh, give us a little overview of the, the venture capital community. You know, we're talking to community or student entrepreneurs thinking about potentially doing entrepreneurship. So, through that lens, we'd love to hear about your career path.
1: So, I'll start a little bit before the MDS road, and, and you know, I think the one message I'd give everybody is my career path's been serendipitous. And I think it's being open to change and continuously recognizing when those opportunities come. He described, I did my undergraduate in life sciences, a master's in pathology, thought I wanted to be a doctor, decided that wasn't going to be my road, did my MBA. And that was really transformative in getting me to think about the business side of science. And in fact, one professor was really influential in that. And he got me my job at Connaught. And that really started my career in the industry, you know, in a very focused way. Connaught got bought a year after I started my career. And again, you know, had to change the way I was thinking about it and went fortunately into the venture business. And now I've really transitioned back and forth between being an operator and being a VC investor most of my career. And then, as you alluded to, in 2005, I took over what was uh, called MDS Capital, the largest VC healthcare fund in the country. But it had really lost its way uh, and wasn't driving returns for investors anymore. And so there was an opportunity for me to restructure that business. uh, And then, two years later, buy it out and rebuild it into what is today the preeminent uh, life sciences investor
0: again. So for Lumera Ventures, can you give us some of the relevant statistics of the business? Uh, you know, number of people, capital, under management, company numbers, etc.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I, I'm going to be probably wrong on the number of companies, but it's something like 25 to 30. Teams, about 15 people, that's made up of about a dozen full-time people, and then a number of ex-pharma CEOs and other advisory consultants that we use. About $650 million in assets under management, we're just closing... Our latest fund, which is Fund 4, it'll be a a $200 million-plus U.S. dollar fund. Plus, we're also managing uh, some additional capital from a large pharma partner out of Europe. So the new fund in aggregate will be about $250 U.S.
0: uh, in total capital available. So one of the larger, probably if not the largest, Canadian life science venture capital fund in Canada. Is that about right? Uh, Ever ever raised uh, in this country. Ever raised. Awesome. Yep. So you talked about joining Lumera when it was known as MDS Capital and the turnaround situation. Describe that for us and what you had to do to turn things around and and move it forward into the robust uh, venture capital firm it is now. What were the headwinds and how did you overcome them?
1: So when I I joined the firm, the firm had just lost its way. It, It wasn't being guided by the principles of building best in class and first in class companies. It really wasn't driven by themes or theses. And so we had 65 employees scattered across North America who frankly didn't have a vision as to what they wanted to accomplish. And so when I took over the business, I spent 90 days looking at every deal that we had ever done. I looked at how we had won and, and, and where we had lost. And there were some characteristics that kept popping up their ads. We won predominantly in under markets. We won with a certain type of leadership. We won when we were the, were the lead investor, not just a co-investor. And so we took all of those lessons learned And went back to our limited partners and said, okay, we're going to change the team. I fired six out of seven of the senior leadership. I promoted a tier of guys and women who I thought were really doing most of the heavy lifting. They're still my partners today. So the four people that that joined me on that journey back in 2005 are still my partners today. And we've had zero turnover there. Uh, We went back to the LPs with a vision and a thesis that said, here's how we think we can manage this capital that we have and drive a real return. Fortunately, they backed us and now they've backed us for four funds since then. So, you know, it was a complex process because we had 86 companies in our portfolio at the time across five fund entities, only one fund entity still actively deploying capital. And so we really had to spend a lot of time prioritizing, figuring out where we could win, figuring out, you know, which companies were not going to scale or or be productive and really honing and focusing our resources on where we could have the
0: most wins. There's a lot of analogies to a startup there, right? So you're essentially doing a lot of customer discovery and looking at the problems looking where the winds were and coming to say okay here's the pain point that our team can uniquely solve and you pitched that to investors and they said yes let's let's give it a go and sounds like you've been executing on that ever since that's 100 percent right and, and and one of the core
1: things we figured out was and we we had offices in california and boston at the time and across the country one of the things we figured out was we were really good at investing in markets where other vcs you know weren't really That actively engaged. We were good at doing the heavy lifting in those places. So that obviously included all of Canada, but in the U.S. that included almost everywhere other than Boston or California. Anyone who knows the industry knows about 75% of all capital gets deployed in those two regions. But when you look at our big wins back then and today, most of them come from places like North Carolina or Florida or Texas or Washington State or Canada. They're not where the traditional VCs get their big wins, and we were doing willing to do the heavy lifting in those secondary markets, and it's paid dividends
0: for us and our investors. Right. So finding those opportunities that may not get the experience of of a VC walking the halls in Cambridge, but still very good silence with the right team members addressing an unmet need. And if you find enough of those, you can have a very successful fund. What is the typical process for Lumera from a first meeting to investing? If we, we think we're talking to community entrepreneurs or grad students, give us a flavor of what the workflow is. Let's assume you got a fund raised and now you're out looking for portfolio companies. What's the process like?
1: So I think most people think the process of this is some guy sends us a business plan and we fall in love and, and then we write them a check. That's not it at all. And um, so we're thematically driven. So our team every year during the course of a fund will create what we call white papers. They're around themes or theses that we believe in where we believe there's unmet need and where we believe we can build unique companies. We then start to approach all of the companies in that white space. We start to look at go to the conferences who the leading uh, researchers in those spaces are and we build our own view of how that market is evolving where the leading scientists are where the leading teams are and what do we think are going to be the winning spaces and then we start talking to those companies and we get all their data as well as part of that thinking process and so out of a whole thematic uh strategy we might get one or two investments that we think are a best-in-class opportunity in that theme that's what drives 80 to 90% of our investment activity. And, and, and again, I think what people don't realize is that many times um, we'll meet a company today that we will really like, but it's not what we call investment ready for what we want to achieve. We'll maintain a relationship with them. We'll touch base with them. We'll watch their progress. We may, we may mentor them. We may share with them strategies. Uh, and we may invest three, four, or five years later. I mean, if, if you look at ZymeWorks, which is a company, uh, Canadian company that we love, uh, that's turned out to be a big win for us, We met the CEO, Ali Triani, when he was still a PhD student in 2009. He had a vision um, about what he wanted to do. He was very early on that journey, but but we thought Ali was just a super smart guy who really had a very strong vision for what he wanted to do. Ali was able to very successfully fund the company early on through a combination of pharma partnership dollars and uh, early-stage family office or seed investors. Uh, and six years later, you know, we made an investment in his company, uh, and that company is worth $2 billion today. Right. But you know, it's, it's not this, we meet today, we do the deal today, or we, you know, we, we never have a relationship.
0: Uh, you know, it's, it's much more complex than that. So the lesson for grad students and community entrepreneurs is you've really got to take a longer term view of this. And when you're thinking about networking and they can connect with somebody like from Lumera, do, do people listen to your advice carefully enough? Some entrepreneurs listen some don't
1: sometimes they're right when they don't listen i mean look you know we have a view our view is based on our biases our our insights our experience um and, and it may not be perfect right like that's you know simple reality some entrepreneurs will listen very carefully i mean you know i still remember louis who's the ceo of a company in quebec city called options you know we met them a number of times over the years he transitioned a company that was an oil and gas business providing downhole tools to measure pressure at the wellhead he had a vision to turn that into a company that could do exactly the same thing in cardiovascular vessels. The first time I met him, I thought he was smoking dope, right? I'm like, you're going from the wellhead to, to someone's chest. You know, that's just not going to happen. But look, he was a smart guy and he, he kept talking to us. And a year before we invested, I said to him, look, Louie, if you can do these six things, we're going to write you a check. He came back to me nine months later and he literally put up on the screen a checklist with the six things that I had said with check boxes beside him. And we wrote him a check that afternoon, literally like, You know, so some listen, some don't, but again, he's turned that company into a company that's now a world-class provider of what are called the FFR wires, you know, doing 35
0: million plus in revenues. Those are two great stories of how uh, companies have started an interaction with you and and turned out to get an investment and go on to be successful companies. I, I guess the other message here is in the life science sector compared to software as a service or something that you could build much more quickly. It is a long-term game, right? I mean, if somebody wants to get into this, they've got to be thinking, I'm going to be working at this company 10, 15 years. And you, I'm assuming you want to see founders that have that, that resolved and belief in the science that they'll want to commit to a company that long to get to meaningful inflection points.
1: For, for sure. Like both, both those gentlemen that, that I just referenced are still running the companies that I talked about, right? So, you know, Ali's been there since 2009 and I think Louie's been there since probably 2010, right? So, you know, they, they're both on 10-year journeys. They're both building fabulous companies in two completely different spaces but you know most of the people in our space not everybody but most of the people in our space are double bottom line driven right it's not just about building a profitable successful high returning company they're driven by a vision to change patient lives right like that that is the core of almost everyone we invest in and many of our many of our ceos are driven by personal stories right a a child who was impacted a wife who was impacted when you get below, you know, below the veneer of the story and start to understand what drives these people, it's a lot of passion.
0: Is it part of your process to try and tease that out? You could. Is there? Is it? Could there be entrepreneurs that are just in it to try and make a quick buck, for lack of a better uh, analogy?
1: Yeah. Look. Look. For sure. For sure. For sure, there are entrepreneurs who are just thinking, "How do I flip this to an IPO, or how do I flip this to a sale?" And you know, we're just not interested. You know, n- not because you sometimes can't make money. We're backing people to to change healthcare paradigms, right? And we want people who have an aligned vision on what that journey is gonna be.
0: Okay, so you've described your kind of top-down view where you identify your areas, you go to the the meetings and whatnot, presumably to identify gaps, maybe identify key opinion leaders, maybe identify solid uh, pathways for a product to get to market, like with clinical endpoints. Once you've got a list of companies, how how many companies would you look at in any given year? And how many would progress to further discussions, diligence, and then maybe even an investment?
1: Yeah, we look at about, it depends on the year a little bit but about 600 companies a year we would do significant work on about a hundred we would do a lot of work on about 20 and we would invest in six roughly so it's about a one percent ratio you know might be one and a half or one and a quarter but it's about a one percent ratio from the you know the, the top of the funnel to actually us writing a check
0: and for the life science entrepreneurs presumably your advice would be you know try and do as much homework on Lemire as you can if you can identify where your areas of interest are and you're not in one of those areas you're you're probably wasting both both parties time in, in approaching you right
1: yeah look so, so you've got to do two things that's exactly right you gotta do your homework because what you want to do is get into a meeting where when you tell your story it resonates with someone on our team because someone on our team is going to take the lead and someone on our team is going to drive the process. And the only way that's going to happen is you've engaged them. You, you've either hit a theme that they fundamentally believe in or you resonate with them as an entrepreneur or, or the business sector is one that they've already been researching. Like, you got to get someone to be your champion, right? And so if you're just too far off center of what really gets us up in the morning, we're not going to do the deal. And it doesn't mean it's not a good deal, right? Like, it could be a fantastic company, but it just may not resonate for us.
0: You talked about a couple of your portfolio examples. Are there any others you'd highlight as recent newsmakers where you've hit inflection points or exits or or wins? A company out of of Victoria, um,
1: out of the island. So, you know, no one would think of building a uh, pharmaceutical company on Vancouver Island, and yet a guy named Richard Glickman has now built uh, two or three of them. He came to us in 2012, and he had an idea of a company that really was a spin out of some technology that he had from a company he previously sold for about a billion dollars. We spent a year working with him to put together a company called Arinea Pharmaceuticals. Uh, We funded in 2013, we did a reverse takeover, took a public via reverse takeover. We then brought in $60 million of traditional venture money. Roll forward to today, that company has an approval for a drug called Lupus Nephritis. It's the first Canadian approval in really two decades for a major, major indication uh, and again, that's a product that went from Richard's vision to on the shelf in seven years for about $350 million, right? You know, completely different metrics than you would hear broadly talked about. And and that was part of the vision when we raised our fund in 2013. Build great Canadian companies and Zyneworks and Orinia were two examples of companies out of that portfolio that became, you know, multi billion dollar companies.
0: So instead of the billion dollars or so that's often quoted generally in pharma biotech to produce a product, these companies are doing it at least in the example you provided for about three hundred million dollars right
1: yeah, and that's the beauty of the whole venture ecosystem right i mean there's lots of failures within the ecosystem broadly, but those successes are built. You know, on a fraction of the capital you would typically require if you were trying to build the same kind of innovation, and and it's because you've got alignment and focus and you know commitment, and you've got everyone pulling in the same direction, and you've got you know broad capital resources of really smart people coming from across a really broad ecosystem, and so you and you can attract the best people, right? I mean, the reality is, you know, big pharma typically has a dedicated team going and pursuing, whereas here when we build a company, we can attract you know truly global leaders to that company knowing that you know they're going to have an impact within a five-year window hopefully in terms of doing something transformative
0: so so let me turn to the broader sector in canada it seems like life sciences in canada is starting to have a moment if i could put it that way with companies going public like repair a couple couple, bunch of companies on the the west coast going like gangbusters
1: yeah you got you got fusion you got you got fusion Accelera. you know you got you know arena design work you got a nice generation Of you know, pretty significant companies.
0: What's the change? Because typically, I mean, I was involved in co-founding a university company, and this was 20 years ago. But at the time, not too many of them had a chance to grow up to be sort of big self self self-sustaining companies, or at least getting to inflection points where you're getting into multi-billion-dollar market cap. So, so what has changed versus those companies that might license or sell off to somebody in the U.S. sort of early on? What's changing in Canada? are, Are we indeed having a moment? Do you see more of that happening in the life science sector in Canada?
1: We're for sure having a moment and I and I and I think it's gonna be more than just a moment. Look, there was there was a lot of really good stuff going on prior to prior to COVID. I mean and you you just talked about some of those companies. And look, I think part of that is just entrepreneurs believing that they can build great things here. Um so that's number one. Number two is access to capital improved, whether that was domestic access to capital, still relatively limited, or you know, broader access to capital, either through uh, foreign investors coming into Canada or through, frankly, the capital markets. Right, the public capital markets. And look, the last ten years have been fabulous in the public capital markets for healthcare. So that's allowed companies like Iranian and Zymeworks and Repair and Fusion all to pursue fairly high-level marketed IPOs. So that that that's really helped on that side. I think entrepreneurs are also believing that the science here is good enough, and that they can build really significant companies today. And, and I think that belief wasn't all that clear a decade ago you know because there weren't that many examples right if you you have to go back really to to 2000 to companies like you know biochem pharma to think about that last generation of really fabulous canadian companies and and so you know now 20 years later we have i i think a truly truly world-class group of companies that are hopefully the foundation for a next generation of companies and as these companies get bigger i mean you think about a company like zymeworks today they have 500, 600 employees, right? So those people are learning the craft of building a biotech in, in a domestic environment, and that's helpful, right? I mean, you know, they want to stay in the environments, they want to spin out, and, and again, if you look at AbbVie, there were so many lessons learned for AbbVie from ZymeWorks. right? You know, similar kind of approaches, both came out of the UBC ecosystem. You know, lots of lessons learned that they could really leverage because
0: of the road that Allie had already paved. Yeah, it's exciting times. And so if you were a a grad student today, uh, thinking about a career in in biotech in Canada, what what do you think the the prospects would be? And what advice would you give them in thinking about trying to, well, maybe start a startup or, or join an existing one to kind of learn the ropes and then maybe start one on their own some point, future point down the line?
1: Yeah, look, so I think there are very few people who are like Ali Trani who can start something out of their PhD. That's not to say you can't. But they're just you know like with everything there's only so many people who are really like that and, and i think there's a misconception today you know everyone thinks there's so much talk about entrepreneurialism look not everybody's an entrepreneur some people are just great players within entrepreneurial companies but they're not the entrepreneur right there's only one entrepreneur per company typically true entrepreneur per company um and entrepreneurs successful entrepreneurs are hard to find so you don't have to be the entrepreneur you can be a core enabler without being the entrepreneur, right? And and again, those players who enable entrepreneurs are just as important in the stories as the entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, it's about opening your eyes and really trying to figure out what the lens is. You know, you and I were talking earlier, you know, when I was a grad, there was only one road. If you didn't go into med school, well, there's two roads. If you didn't go into med school, you went into teaching or the lab, or you went to a pharma company. Today, I think there's just a much broader range of opportunities, right? You can you come to firms like ours, The public markets are opening up, so you can actually come to some of the iBanks now who are recruiting for sophisticated, smart people who can help them understand these kind of technologies. There are a lot more startups that are recruiting young people because they need the talent. There's a lot more talent in these companies that's diversified. It's not just PhDs coming out of fundamental science, wet labs. You've also got all kinds of people doing IT or or, IT things like AI that's complementary to some of these technologies, even on drug discovery, right? So it's much less linear than it used to be. And I think you really have to take a wide lens and see you know, what that whole ecosystem and opportunity uh,
0: set looks like. Yeah, to draw an analogy uh, in, in terms of having careers and whatnot, I got to assume the 50th employee at Google is probably pretty happy, right, in terms of uh, getting stock options and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to be the entrepreneur, but if you could... Uh, join a team that's on. Uh, you know, I guess the trick is predicting which ones are going to be the rocket ships. But
1: we manage money for a bunch of Shopify people, uh, and I can tell you, you don't have to be employee number one. At a Canadian story like Shopify, right? There are lots of Shopify multimillionaires millionaires uh, you know, who've, who've gone, you know, in that story, and and that's exactly right. You don't have to be employee number one. Uh, there are lots of roles within these companies, uh, you know, at, at various stages in their lives.
0: What advice would you give to a grad student if they wanted to try and pursue a career in venture capital specifically? Should they work at a company first and then work at VC? Or is there a chance they could get into VC right out of grad school or undergrad?
1: Yeah, so I, my advice has always been relatively similar. I think if you can go to an operating company and get some real operating experience, that's the absolute best thing that you can do. And, and even when I wanted to be, when I finally decided I wanted to be a VC, I, I was fortunate because Bill Cochran, who was the CEO of Connaught, was going to help me with that that road. And I remember one of my first interviews, you know, uh, with one of the leading firms in the US, the guy said, look, you're a smart guy. You're a very affable guy. You come with a high recommendation, but you have no practical experience on our business. Go work for two years in an operating company and then come back and talk to me on it. And, and so I've always believed that, you know, was important. Um, I was fortunate because I went from that conversation to getting a job in venture capital. I think if you can get some operating experience, I think it really makes you better. We've had a couple of guys on our team who came in relatively. You know straight out of their phds or straight out of their mbas who've now gone to work for our operating companies And, and i think if you talk to them today they would say they are much better investors and much better company mentors and supporters because they've been on that operating side you know i would say that was true for me even though i was fortunate to be able to start my career as a vc four years later i went to an operating company um and that experience was fabulous but but there are different opportunities now you know we've just launched a mentorship program where we're taking people in the last year of their PhD or their MBA or, or an MD program who have a real who have demonstrated a propensity and desire to do something in our ecosystem, and we're going to let them in the kitchen. Um, these mentorship programs are up to a year. We're going to let these people, you know, so, sort of spend five to six days a month with us. They'll be in our Monday meetings. They'll hear the flow of, you know, that company who presents to us on a Monday and how we think about it and the diligence process. We'll get them to do projects within internally. We'll put them on due diligence teams. So, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty unique process. We already have one young lad from Queens who started with us. He's 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 doing a combined uh, degree out of um, Smith School of Business and the Life Sciences program. So he's demonstrated exactly what we're talking about—that real deep propensity to want to, um, to to learn the industry and and kind of get engaged. And he started with it a couple of weeks ago, and we're excited to have him on board. But we're looking to bring on you know three or four more people like that. There's another program. Um, there's a couple other programs right now out there um there's a group called halo health which is an angel network all it's 100 percent clinicians 250 clinicians who invest they also do some of this kind of mentorship and they have a group of you know phds and mds obio has some mentorship programs as well uh where you can get connected with inter- you know with people in the industry so there's a there's a variety of these things that absolutely did not exist even 10 years ago where i think if you can get engaged you know you're going to get a very eye-opening experience in terms of what's really going on how value is created where it's value created you know who are the different
0: stakeholders in the ecosystem really are yeah absolutely that kind of falls in the category of things i wish were around when i was in grad school so your your postgrad program sounds absolutely stellar to be i don't want to call it the fly on the wall but to be immersed and just hear you know the day-to-day flow of you know these are everybody's a human being and there's personalities and there's technology and there's capital, you know, it's just, it all kind of goes together in, in, uh, in various ways, but uh, there's no faster education to put relevance on your graduate or undergraduate training.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we made this, that's why we made it a year long program, right? So people could really see something progressing through the entire cycle. Cause the problem with just a summer internship and, you know, we, we've done those too, is that it's a very short block of time it's not our busiest or most productive time of the year, right? Like we have other times of the year when we are much busier and much more productive. And so you don't, if you don't see those, I don't think you really get the the sense of what the flow is like at a firm like ours.
0: key to be seeing things that go over a longer period of time so you could see how projects progress versus, you know, three months in the summer, you'd have to get maybe lucky to see something progress considerably. So Peter, we're, we're nearing the end of the time. wonder if I could ask you one last question. Uh, what do you see as some of the technology trends in the life sciences, you know, with the advent of CAR-T and cell therapies and whatnot? What, what do you see as kind of the big trends that are on the upswing?
1: Yeah, look, so, so, look, gene therapy is, I think, going to be fundamentally a core enabling technology over the next couple of years. And I think that's going to have all kind of manifestations. I mean, I think originally people have been really thinking about that in the context of rare and orphan diseases. I think you're going to see this going much broader. We've just backed a company as an example. that's doing gene theri- therapy for um, cardiovascular disease around, um, you know, uh, really uh, creating new blood vessels around the heart after after an infarct. You know if if these kind of technologies work they're game changing because the population that you can affect is is really fundamentally different you know i think precision medicine and 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 you know therapies where you can use biomarkers to target you know to facilitate and identify which patients are really going to be the beneficiaries i think all of those kinds of things are going to be the next generation of science and technology that's going to drive innovation right being much more specific about which patients you're trying to treat, how long you're trying to treat them, where you're trying to treat them, um, and and in a much more customized way than the traditional process. Because the traditional process, unfortunately, you know, drugs on average only work in 30, 40% of the patients, right? Just no matter how good they are, you know, it's very rare for drugs to get over those metrics. And so I think that's really the next wave. And I think things, you know, like you talked about with CAR-T and precision medicine and gene gene therapy and gene editing and all of those kind of things are gonna be transformative, technologies over the next decade.
0: Very good. Well, Peter, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. A very informative discussion. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Jim, pleasure and you know,
1: all the best to uh, everyone who might listen to this. And if you ever want to reach out, you can send me an email.
0: Thanks, Jim. And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about research, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.